0: All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast the sum of them. Hi, everybody. Hi to you, wherever you may be, as Wes said, and uh, if you're in the lodge or 5 p.m. service, we're glad to be together today to worship. I would like to invite you also, if you will, to join me in just a moment as we pray together. Father, your church is gathered, and this one, Hope Church, just a small group in the larger church, your people called out from the world of many billions of people who have come to worship you, who have gathered to sing your praises, who have gathered to respond to your goodness and to who you are. And Lord, we are aware that every moment reverberating and echoing through heaven are the praises of your glory, and Lord, we anticipate a day when earth will once again catch up to that eternal reverberation, to that praising of your glory in every corner, that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so, Lord, as we come in today and we bring our own stories, our own reflections, those places in us that hurt, those places that hope, and everything in Between and along with it, we ask you, Holy Spirit, meet us and speak with us, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the last thing, the the last thing I wanted in my life when I was 20 years old, the last thing I wanted was to become a Christian. This just, no, no way. Like, this become a Christian thing, this was not part of my vision of my life. I had my vision of my life laid out. And it was a very snazzy picture of a Wall Street tycoon who made a lot of money and had this fancy life. And, and the last thing I wanted in my life was to become a Christian. And there were a million reasons for that in addition to what I'm telling you. So I'm a person who's always been kind of wired to want to follow what I would call logic and rational thinking. And what was becoming disturbing for me was the pursuit of my logic and rational thinking was slowly being dismantled. My rationalist logic was slowly appearing to me to not hold up to logic. And this was creating a kind of crisis for me. So we'll come back to this. I wanna focus on Psalm 139 as Wes mentioned and as our bumper video speaks of it. I'm reading here from the New Living Translation. I'll reference some of the other translations too. The question is what does it mean to be a human being? And for today our focus is it means to be made and loved by the God who knows you and loves you. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 17. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I'm a person who needs a lot of what I'm going to be talking about this morning. And I'm aware that when I say that, you may not need all of that. And that's great. We're all sort of different, right? We human beings, this big mixed bag of nuts, that is who we are. But I need this kind of stuff. So I'm gonna invite those of you who wanna go with me to take a little bit of a geeky tour this morning, because I need this kind of stuff. You know, as the years go by and hard stuff happens, I think for every single one of us, To one degree or another, we resonate with the guy who Jesus healed his daughter, and then he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. In a sense, the church, that is the body of people who are believers, are people who believe. They have a foundation of belief and a yes to God, but that doesn't mean that it's all buttoned up. And we're constantly in need of encouragement for this belief. Particularly in a fallen world, where the sin, the brokenness, the pain, the hardship would buffet our beliefs in so many different ways. So I'm going to try to help our unbelief today as we consider what it means to be a human being, made and loved by God. OK, now maybe you're a person who has one or these kind of thoughts: Where did I come from? How did I get here? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's my reason for living? And these bring us to various mysteries. Okay, so let me take you on a little tour of my own journey of logic. I had reasoned pretty substantially in my mind why there was no God. But then certain aspects of logic began to, if you could say it, fall down on logic. Here's what I mean. Let's imagine that you're going for a walk in a state park. Good time of year to think about that. Maybe you go see some fall foliage. Maybe you've gone and decided for some time alone to be quiet and reflect. Maybe you're with a friend or a couple of people. And so you're walking through the state park. And as you've all seen, periodically, there'll be like little picnic tables that are sort of dotting these pathways here and there. And you're walking along. You haven't seen anybody for like 15 minutes on your walk. When you come to one of the picnic tables, and it's got two place settings that are on opposite sides of the table, and you've got a napkin with a fork on top of it, you've got a plate, and then you've got a knife and a spoon and a drinking glass, and those two place settings are right there on the table, 12 items, if I'm getting my count correct. And what would start going through your mind right at that moment? I mean, it could be various, but it's it's going to be something like this. Wow, I wonder who put that there. I wonder what they're planning. I wonder what vision they have. Because clearly something intentional has been put here with a vision for something meaningful to happen. Here's what you would not think. That is amazing how that table got set as a random result of cosmic forces. You just wouldn't. You just wouldn't. And that's only 12 items we're talking about on that table. I mean, even after a storm like last night, any of us, no matter how old or young, wouldn't walk by that table and say, amazing, the storm blew branches on the ground and blew this plate in this place sitting right here on this picnic table. You just wouldn't do it. It would belie intelligence, it would belie rational thinking. And it's only 12 items on a picnic table. Let's take another example that raises the stakes a little bit. I've always been really fascinated reading a lot about sort of World War II history. There are various similarities, of course, with the disturbing war that's going on in the Ukraine. Let's say you're on a patrol at night and you know that you are near where enemy soldiers are. And so you're moving really quietly, and it's dark. And then you come to a circle of about 10 rocks in the ground. And in the middle of the circle is some smoldering ash and wood with a bit of smoke coming up from it. What would you do at that moment? I suspect maybe the first thing you would do is take your safety off your weapon but a string of thoughts led you to do that. What would they be? They'd be, the enemy is near, and the fact that I see smoke still coming up from this fire means they're recently near, and so you would be on high alert. What you would not do is say, that is amazing how those 10 stones randomly appeared here in a circle with a smoldering fire of smoke in the middle of it. 10 stones, couple pieces of wood, a little bit of smoke you absolutely would never say, what a coincidence. It's amazing how that randomly happened. Okay, so what I want to do is take us on a little bit of a journey into wonder. Because what we're told in Psalm 139 is that you knit me together in my mother's womb. And in the new international version, verse 14 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so God has knit us together. The word knit is very conspicuous. It's not an accident. The word knit implies very delicate, attentive craftsmanship. Whenever I've watched somebody knit, it's always been impressive to me, just the cadence and the rhythm of how they move the needles and they weave the yarn And they're doing this with a vision of something very intentional. Even if at the moment there's only about six square inches of, let's say, blue wool, there's a vision for something that's very intentional. And all of this knitting is delicate, intelligent, visionary craftsmanship. So the Bible says you knit me together in my mother's womb. Let me share some stats and information with you as I got interested in pursuing some knowledge on being knit together in our mother's womb. This is a little bit of what God's knitting looks like. Current medical knowledge says that our bodies have approximately 35 trillion cells. Give or take a few trillion. 35 trillion, right? The number's so big, we all say, wow, that's really big. But we really can't have any appreciation for it. It's just way too big for us to count. 35 trillion cells. Okay, and we were talking about a table setting that had 12 items on it, and we would say, not possible that it's random. A circle of stones that had 10 stones, and not possible that it's random. Somebody made it, somebody put it there. Current medical knowledge says our bodies have approximately 35 trillion cells, all specialized for certain functions, with an interdependence that enables our bodies to function. The vast majority of our cells this is from my little bit of medical research, says 70% of them are red blood cells. 70% of our 35 trillion are red blood cells, which makes me think of Leviticus 1711, written maybe 3,000 years ago, that says the life is in the blood. 70% of our cells are in our blood. I read a little NIH quote that says, in tiny blood vessels in the lung... The red blood cells pick up oxygen from inhaled air, and then they carry it through the bloodstream to all parts of the body. When they reach their goal, they release it at that location. They deposit it. Then they return to the heart to get fresh oxygenated blood, and they're constantly red blood cells delivering oxygen, which is to say delivering life so that our bodies are functioning. Okay, our cells are specialized to conduct electrical currents. Electricity is required for the nervous system to send signals throughout the body to the, and to the brain, making it possible for us to move, to think, to feel. The average human at rest, okay, do a little math in this room because it'll get interesting. There's probably about 600 people in the room. The average human at rest produces around 100 watts of power. So that's why it's cold in here at the beginning, and then it's warm by the time we finish. <laughs> 600 people at 100 watts of power each. No wonder it gets warmer over time in a room. Over periods of a few minutes, human beings can comfortably sustain 3 to 400 watts of generated power. And in the case of very short bursts of energy, such as sprinting, some humans can output over 2,000 watts. Approximately 50 different hormones have been identified in the human body. Hormones influence the chemical makeup of our bodies. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins are especially among those that influence positive mood and emotion. There are 37 miles of nerves in a mature human body. 37 miles of nerves in a mature human body. Your skin cells regenerate, constantly moving from the deepest layers to the outer layers before they die off. We shed about 600,000 skin cells a day. On average, this full cycle process takes about a month. Less if you're younger, more if you're older. Ready for this little bit of family news? Dust in homes is usually composed of 20 to 50 percent dead skin cells. <laughs> so, oh, so you know, it wouldn't be unusual if somebody said, Hey, before you go, would you mind cleaning up some of your dead skin before you leave? <laughs> and maybe before you leave this morning, just brush your chair and clean up some of the dead skin off of it before you go for the next person. So beautifully are we knit together that God knew us before we were born. Right? We all wonder questions like, why am I here? What is my purpose? Do I matter? Is there any intentionality to me? God knew us before we were born. It says so here in Psalm 139. You watched me as I was being formed, as I was woven together. You saw me before I was born. Jeremiah records God speaking to Jeremiah, saying this to him, before I formed you in the womb, not only while you were being formed in the womb, which Psalm 139 says, but here God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Such knowledge, such purposefulness. And so now we get into this idea of wonder, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonder is an essential element to joy in human life. Okay, so let me go back and say this for a moment. As I was pursuing faith, now that I had come to a place of believing, which I didn't want to come to, I pursued the same personality approach that I would most things, which was basically, God, I'm going to figure you out for my Christian life to have any integrity, then it has to make perfect sense, and I have to figure you out. I thought that was actually kind of a virtuous approach. And there are some good, beautiful things. That is, we're seeking God, but it turns back on itself when we say something like, I'm going to figure you out. Because if we say we're going to figure God out, The only way that rolls out is I will become the bigger and God will become the smaller. And then that means I'm God and God isn't. And so there's beauty in seeking God. But what I've learned at this point in my life, I definitely want the capacity for wonder. That is mystery. When I was a new Christian, I had zero tolerance for mystery. I was going to nail this whole thing down. Now I understand and appreciate that the mystery invites the wonder. The wonder brings to gratitude and worship. So what's a working definition of wonder? I would say wonder or mystery, they're very similar, is I have enough knowledge to have a concrete confidence, but there is also enough that I do not know that enables my spirit to soar in the imagination of the bigness of God. The word behold appears a lot in the Bible. There's a little nod to our Christmas series coming up in a couple of months. But Craig Barnes, a pastor, said, The parts of the Christian story that had drawn me into the church were not the believing parts, but the beholding parts. See, for me, it was exactly the opposite. I had no room for the beholding. I had only room for the rationalistic, what I thought was a logical pursuit of believing. So Craig Barnes and I came differently, which is all part of the way God does it beautifully. Okay, so he says, the parts of the story that had drawn me into the church were not the believing parts, but the beholding parts. And then he goes on to mention a number of the behold verses. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, behold means stop and take in the bigness, the wonder, the mystery, and the beauty of it all. And so in in this place of wonder, we have that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you do a little research in the Hebrew on those words, we almost always have a very hard time with this word fear of God. When the Bible says, fear God, most of us in our day, we don't know what to do with that. And it hits insecurity places in us. What it means is to have a reverence that comes with awe, that brings your soul to a place of delight and joy. So we use the word awesome a lot, right? And as a word nerd, I sometimes like somebody will say, you know what? That coffee was awesome. And I'm like, it was good, but like, I wouldn't say it was awesome. Like awe is something that fills your soul with this sense of incredible delight at the bigness and the beauty of it, and simultaneously a sense of humility at the smallness of me. And it's the two of them together that well up worship and gratitude. The delight of being lifted here, which also makes us feel small, and the gap in here will be worship and gratitude. So like somebody says, that coffee was awesome. I'm like, meh. It was good, but I don't know it was awesome. You know, somebody might say, that TikTok video was awesome, which strikes me as the superlative of an oxymoron that a TikTok video could be awesome. (laughs) But here's what the Bible is making very clear, and these are Bible words. You ready for it? You are awesome the way God has made you and me, the way God has knit you together with his level of intelligence and power and love created us personally as human beings, the words here are getting at the best English word would be awesome. Way more awesome than coffee. Way more awesome than TikTok. So awe is a remarkable aspect of what God wants us to know as human beings. And I think we're living in a day without awe. So Jacob Needleman is a journalist. He writes an account about being at Apollo 17's launch in 1975. Listen to how he describes it. He says, I was an observer at the launch of Apollo 17 in 1975. It was a night launch, and there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn, wisecracking and waiting. Hold that thought, cynical reporters. The countdown came and then the launch. The first thing you see is this extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can bear to look at. Then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come to you. You hear a whoosh, lifting hum. It enters right into you, he says. A sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place as this thing goes up and up and up and up. And then there's total silence people just get up quietly, helping each other up, they're kind, they open doors, they look at one another, they speak quietly and interestedly. These people had suddenly become moral because the sense of wonder had made them moral. It's really tempting to be cynical. It's very tempting to have an attitude, which is, there's nothing new under the sun. I've seen it all. I already know how that works. I already know that life is hard, and we got you know bumper sticker versions of that. Uh, it's very tempting to the flesh to be cynical. What I would say is cynicism is of the flesh, but wonder is of the spirit. And God is inviting us, made by him, wonderfully, fearfully, awesomely to live in the spirit in response so that we have this capacity for wonder. Of course, what the psalmist is saying is, when I look at you, God, how precious are your thoughts? They can't be numbered. When I look at you, we sang earlier, it's well with my soul, but don't miss the importance of the words. Through it all, my eyes are on you. Therefore, it's well with my soul. When our eyes are on God is where we have the capacity for things to be well with our soul. When our eyes are on ourselves is when we're anxious and depressed and struggling. And God has made us intentionally beautifully. He has his eyes on us, just as he's inviting us to have our eyes on him. So when it came to God, I wanted to know all of it. And now I know that this is not so much a form of virtue, but a form of pride. So Henry Nouwen says, with the disappearance of the sacred from our world, the human imagination has been impoverished. So then, you know what the biggest crisis of faith is? And I say this with great sympathy for honest, seeking people. I really believe this is the essence of a crisis of faith. If there is a God who made me, then I am accountable to him. This is the essence of a crisis of faith. Because if you're a person who has not had any faith, and I remember this so clearly, the possibility of God being real and being who he says he is, it can only mean, it it means a lot of things, but it has to include among the many things that I am accountable to him. And this is the crisis, because here is where it's a crisis of the will. It's no longer a crisis of knowledge. It's actually my knowledge is beginning to apprehend that God is real. The crisis is, if you're real, that means I'm accountable to you. When I began my life in Christ, the very first believing prayer I ever said was far less a prayer of conversion and far more a statement of resignation. I remember it very well. And I remember praying to God saying this, God, I cannot believe what I'm about to say to you, but I believe you're real. And if you're real, I know that I have no choice but to live my life for you. It really was not a happy prayer for me at the moment. It was a resignation. It's only later growing into his love and beauty and goodness that that prayer of resignation becomes praise. So the crisis of faith, if there is a God who made me, then I'm accountable to him. Well, also, guess what? We are loved by him. So I don't know if you know anything about the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith. It's an annual conference that happens in Dallas, Texas, and it's like a gathering of astrophysicists. Okay, so this is people who work at places like Caltech and Stanford and Harvard, and let me read you a quote. Now, you've got to hang with me on this, if you will, but this is from Stephen Meyer, who's a guy who's a regular there, and this is a gathering of anywhere across the board with faith, lots of atheists, lots of agnostics, and then some believers, All right, it's going to take you a minute to get here with me, but please hang with me. Okay, so he writes, clearly matter and energy could not cause themselves to come into existence before they themselves existed. As it happens, Alan Sandage, Caltech astronomer, was not the only astronomer at this time who perceived a convergence between the evidence for a beginning and a theistic perspective. Owen Gingrich of Harvard, whose lecture the night before at SMU had tipped me off about the conference, also made clear that he did not think that science could definitely prove the existence of God. Nevertheless, his popular lecture, Biblical Creation and Scientific Cosmogony," did explore what he called a strange convergence between the testimony of modern cosmology and the specifically biblical idea that the universe flashed instantly into existence a finite time ago. Several years later, the late Robert Jastrow of the Goddard Space Institute, who also attended the Dallas Conference, published a popular book called God and the Astronomers. That made many of the same points. Jastrow, who was a religiously agnostic Jewish scientist, discussed the obvious theistic implications of the Big Bang Theory. Though he acknowledged that these implications made him personally uncomfortable, He explained that the theory with its affirmation of a beginning seems to portray the origin of the universe in terms that closely match what a biblically informed theologian would expect. In a memorable conclusion to his book, Jastrow observed that the discovery of a definite cosmic beginning is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries, he says. Why is it hard for Jastro to grasp that God could be real? One reason it's hard is because he knows that if God is real, then I'm accountable to this God. But more beautifully than that, if we keep on the search, we begin to realize that we are made and loved by this God. Once we begin to realize this, one of two things happens. We either raise our fist at God or you bend your knee before him. We either soften our hearts or harden them. To soften our hearts is to come alive, to now experience God and his love and his joy and his wonder. See, in the Bible, to be dead means to be dead to God, and to a lot to be alive means to be alive to God. John 1:4 says it this way, in him was life and that life was the light Of human beings. One of the beautiful things you hear from lots of people who talk about a conversion to faith in God is they'll say, My life beforehand, as I look back on it now, seemed like it was lived in black and white. And once I came to faith, it's as though it all turned to color. In him was life, and that life was the light of human beings. You need light to see color. Without that light, then everything's going to be an opaque grayness. But when we turn to Christ who is life and is light, then lo and behold, that gray opaqueness becomes living color. So the years go on, and you experience a lot of stuff in life. And you begin to wonder if God knows about what I'm experiencing, and you begin to wonder if he cares about it. The scriptures say we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In Luke 12, we have it this way. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Not a sparrow, Jesus says, is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I couldn't resist. It's about 100,000 on a normal human head. (laughs) Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Dallas Willard said, Some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen are elderly people whose souls shine so brightly their bodies are hardly visible. Dorothy Day, Malcolm Muggeridge, Agnes Sanford, Golda Meir, Ethel Waters, and so on. The natural beauty of the human being is given from the kingdom to every person who will receive it. Far be it from me to correct Dallas Willard, but if I could, I would change the last sentence and say the natural beauty of the human being is given from the king to every person who will receive it. So here's my invitation to you this week for a little homework experience. Find a time and set aside 15 uninterrupted minutes where you can focus your attention on something that will instill wonder in you. And we're all different. For one of you, that might be, I'm going to go sit and look at a flower in my garden. For another, you want to go for a walk. For another, you'll go to the art museum and sit in front of a painting. Fifteen minutes is probably a minimum of what it'll take to begin to consider and take in the possibility of the wonder. And why should we do this? Because the Bible says that you are awesome. And when we understand how God made us, the result is that it wells us up with wonder and worship and gratitude. Let's pray. Our Father God, we wonder, we wonder, do you know, do you care? Are you there? We wonder, Lord. And so we thank you that your word today has given us affirmations, clarities, that you have knit us together 35 trillion cells worth of interdependent functionality, not to mention that, but with a soul where we can know you personally. So, Lord, for all of us who say at various times in life, I do believe, please help my unbelief. Lord, thank you for the reminder today. That to be a human being means to be God-made and God-loved. And the appropriate use of the word is awesome. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs)